A Radio Berlin talked to Almut and Mohammed about the revolution that started 10 years ago in Syria and the ongoing struggle of Syrian revolutionaries for their dignity and ideals. We touched on topics like the recent Syrian history, the first ideas in the founding of local revolutionary committees and Omar Arsis, failed solidarity and Western definitions of anti-imperialism, money flows and the influence of NGOism on the beginnings of the revolution, as well as the importance and development of anarchism in Syria and its history in the Arab world. Do you feel like you want to introduce yourself for our listeners and maybe say something about you and maybe your background? So, uh, my name is uh, Mohammed Abu Hajar. Um, now based in Kassel, where I'm doing my PhD on post development studies and concerning Syria and the intervention of NGOs in Syria, which is my background as an activist. I used to be a member of the Communist Party in Syria until 2011. And then from that time onwards, I joined the local coordination committees, which was the higher umbrella for revolutionary committees in, in Syria and South Syria. My name is Almut, and I'm doing my research uh, for a dissertation at the Freie University um, in Berlin on Syria. I used to be interested in uh, anarchism in the Arab world, and then I realized a few years ago that uh, there was something really important going on in Syria when I heard the name of Omar Aziz and um, the whole story of the local council that he helped to conceptualize. And um, this is what I'm dealing with and with the question of how leftists, of how anarchists, libertarian communists remember what has happened in Syria um, in terms of this local council. And other than that, I co-authored a book with a friend. Um, it's called Linksleben and we have a blog too and um, I'm interested in Marxism and anarchism and um, councils uh, yes, as a tool to uh, transform the society into communism, anarchism, whatever you want to call it someday. Okay, thanks a lot for your introduction and uh, to start to talk about uh, Syria do you feel like we can have a little oversight over the maybe younger history of Syria that eventually led up to the um, Assad clan taking power? Uh, I think the history of Syria as a post-colonial country since the independence from the French mandate in 1946, we've been always having a military goal of, of state uh, and that's how different affiliations with different uh, backgrounds uh, sized power or military power in Syria. So, The democratic experience in the history of Syria is really short. Uh, it was always disturbed by other uh, regional and international power. By 1970, there was a top of state, uh, military top of state led by uh, Hafez al-Assad, uh, and that was under the umbrella of uh, socialist, nationalist ideology of, of that party, which was controlling the country since 19, uh, 1963. Uh, what was special about uh, Hafez Assad is he never accepted uh, someone else uh, the president of them. And he aimed to uh, change the elections. And uh, we don't have the elections anymore. We have referendums where we can only say yes or no to the president, but we can't vote to multiple presidents or choose one of multiple presidents. And that's how dictatorship took the form of asceticism, which I think is a particular form of 
died in 2000, and that immediately took uh, his uh, son to, to, to become the president. It was four hours change of constitution, and then we have a new president. And the same way, you just say yes or no, it's a referendum, it's never an election. So Syria never had an election in 2014. At least Syria under Assad party never had, Assad control never had any, any elections until 2014 when it was election. There was only one other uh, candidate who uh, declared loyalty to Assad himself. And I think it's um, noteworthy that when uh, the father, Hafez al-Assad, uh, died, people attached hopes to um, his successor, his son, Bashar al-Assad. And indeed, there were um, phases in which uh, one might have thought that the country, the, like the political scene, the political system would open up and allow for more opposition. So there were there was, for example, the Damascena feeling or the Damascus Spring, and people were re like the intellectuals the, from the opposition, um, especially the leftists. They were really encouraged to, um, or they 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 felt encouraged to um, to speak up, to organize salons, to gather, to organize, to debate things more openly, and then these hopes were um, quite quickly destroyed because there was a wave of arrests and people. Um, ended up in jail and so it was uh, it was made clear by Bashar al-Assad that actually he would not um, live up to those hopes that the people had and that was in the mid-2000s, around 2006 or 2005. And uh, these hopes in, let's say, the, the change of the ruler, the change to Bashar al-Assad, these hopes, where did they come from? Were they related to the person of Bashar al-Assad or was it just because it was a change and people were hoping for a change for good? I think he himself promised. So at the 2000, at the declaration of presidency, at the speech of inauguration, he said that Syria is starting a process of reformation, modernization and reformation, he called it, which mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning had, like gave an impulse to... Uh, civic activism and, as, as Edmund said, uh, salons were created and it just exposed the underground opposition, particularly opposition, which also changed themselves and reformed themselves. So one of our the traditional communist parties shifted to uh, social liberalism at that time. And that was the general atmosphere in Syria. But what we got from that reformation was only reforming the economy, reforming the economy, and then by 2005, we discovered that Syria is adopting now the um, social market economy and not anymore the socialist economy. And that was the only thing that they took seriously in reforming the country. So I remember at that time, our political party says, if you want to liberalize the economy, liberalize the state, liberalize the politics. Of it. So at least we have the, the right to strike. Workers have the right to strike, which was still illegal under socialism. So we they were politically socializing their own prisons and the economy was just going towards the West and they tried even to engage with the European Union uh, in negotiations over partnership, over economic partnership, which structurally changed the Syrian economy for the European partnership. And that was a crime. And like the moment that you say you want to change the, 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 the economic infrastructure in Syria and uh, eliminate socialism, it used to be a crime that they take people, and communists went under that crime for years and tens of years to jail, and the president did it over a night. Exactly, the 
what what Syria what then happened when Bashar al-Assad came to power after in the years was tremendous economic liberalization, uh, which is notorious, um, especially like there are modernization schemes um, in the Syrian economy, um, especially also in the real estate sector um, that destroyed old grown structures of housing and um, replaced whole neighborhoods with modernized uh, housing schemes. And I think this also caused a lot of frustration with many Syrians um, who were marginalized, who were pushed out of the centers of the cities, or probably it's especially with Damascus, that people were pushed to the margins uh, geographically as a result of this, this modernization policy that uh, Assad or his um, ruling complex um, introduced. And at the same time, there was no liberalization in the political sphere. And maybe, Mohammed, you can also, because you were, uh, you were, you used to be a member of the Communist Party, maybe you can explain what the, what the oppositional landscape looks like. Because it's important to know that the Muslim Brotherhood or the Islamists were never really strong in Syria, especially not at the time of the outbreak of the uprising. I mean, the political opposition in Syria before 2011 was mainly uh, led by more radical uh, socialists. So we're talking about Three big uh, communist parties. Uh, there are two that aligned with the regime from the beginning, the 1970. There were three, and they are the biggest, I think, in presence among the political opposition. And they were leftists. So they ha you have the Syrian uh, communist, the Workers Communist League. You have the uh, political office of the political bureau of the communist party, and you have our party, Pansyun. And there were three big present forces in, in, in the opposition and you have the other spectrum of, of like pan-Arabists who also had presence but really not Islamists I mean Islamists at the time uh, after the uh, invasion of Iraq after the American of, uh, after the American invasion in Iraq were partly supported by the regime I mean they saw uh, the regime so that jihadists can be at their favor at the favor of the regime sent them to Iraq but yeah, Muslim Brotherhood had their uprising in, in 1982, and since then, uh, the regime really smashed them down, and they had no structure in Syria. So at the beginning of the revolution, we as, as, as people, as activists, and, and the mass movement, like thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, were saying we are not Muslim Brotherhoods. Not because we are not, not because we are not, but just because it was a, it was a thing that is so, so scary to say. So people are so scared to identify with the Islamists, and that's how uh, it was so naturally said in, in protest, and we are not, uh, we are not Muslim Brotherhood, we, uh, we want a secular, uh, not secular, we said civil state, that was the main demand at the very beginning of the revolution, the very first month of the revolution, the demands were civil state, which in the Syrian context means and can you talk about when like when you started to realize that like something is happening now or that maybe something is coming also in the maybe in the relation to the so-called arab spring i wouldn't dare to say that uh, anyone saw something coming i mean there is Azmi bishara who is a palestinian um theorist, and he said that there will be something but uh, i don't think anyone in syria even to happen. I mean, the day of, of the, the poll of Mubarak, on that night on Mubarak poll, and I was with two friends in my hometown, and we were all communists, and we talked openly. 
openly about politics usually, but the moment we heard about Mubarak, we were just staring at each other, and all of us wanted to say, is it going to happen? We could see the eyes are wondering whether it's going to happen in Syria, or what does it mean for you? What does it mean for, for Syrians? But none of us dared to even say it, so I don't think that anyone could imagine it happening in Syria. I mean, nobody published anything saying that it might happen in Syria. The president himself said, oh, that and at the beginning, they were endorsing the Arab Spring, and the Syrian regime endorsed the Arab Spring because they had conflicted relations with regime in Egypt, and they thought it's only about the others, but it's not gonna, even the regime couldn't imagine it happening in Syria. Nobody could see it happening in Syria, and even, especially, I mean, there were calls for a day of operation in Syria, that was the 6th of February, I think, so one month earlier than when the train started. And I was supposed to travel to the Jordan at that time, but I postponed it to this wait and see what is going to happen and if there is anyone who's going to go to streets there was no one like literally not even a single person in the streets which confirmed the idea that it's not going to happen in Syria and have exactly how it happened in Egypt people activists from abroad but in Syria it was people from abroad who called for the day of rage nobody responded and you could even see streets and squares were even more empty than usual then I left really being disappointed and knowing that it's not going to happen in Syria, I leave and in one month it starts, it starts even somewhere completely uncovered by the media. I mean, nobody knew about Dara at that time. We don't know that Dara exists. We don't know anything about it. You know, it's just a city in the south. We don't have any clue that there is even a political movement in there. I mean, usually the political movement is concentrated in, in, in the west and in the center of Syria, but not in the south. I mean, it was not even a political movement, right? Because what, like, what was the self-inulation of this Mohammed Bouazizi, the man who set himself on fire in, in Tunisia in December 2010, could probably be um, parallel to what happened in Deraa in the south of Syria, because this is what really then sparked the protest. Because Mohammed just explained that the call for protest was unsuccessful, nobody appeared. But then what happened in the south of uh, Syria, in the, in the town or in the city of Deraa, there was a bunch of youth who sprayed something, who sprayed a graffiti. I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was. Maybe it was the Ashab Yurid Ispadanizam, I think, the people who want to follow the regime. And then what happened was that they were arrested and tortured. And then people went to the police station to protest. And then there was, they were really, that they were adding insult to injury when they told the mothers or the parents, I think they told the, the fathers, Go bring the mothers of the children, and I will make new children for you. And it was it was just such a high scale of insult. And then um, the the protest really broke out in Dara. And then there was the mass like then the wave was building up of protest, and it was like ever growing over months or over over weeks, let's say. And then there was a turning point. Also, I think when people again were waiting for Bashar al-Assad's uh, response. If he was going to, um, you know, to going to introduce reforms after those first uh, protests, and then again, people were disappointed because he completely, he was his speech showed that he had not understood that at least morally he will absolutely lose this cause. He he kept insulting uh, the revolutionaries actually, or the people who went who took to the streets, and then. I think this was the point when people really started organizing on the grassroots level and um, tried to uphold the protests and even fuel the protests and start making demands or start, you know, 
really turning their back on the regime and not have any hopes anymore in, in that government. And um, maybe you can like try to describe like what means organizing and what kind of people were starting to organize and were they organizing around a certain idea? Most of them, let's say, had a background from coming from the Communist Party or there were already different political ideas. Try to understand that somehow. In my opinion, that when parallel, there were two movements happening at the same time. One in the centers, in the urban centers of Syria, And we can maybe just say it's Damascus and Aleppo, and those are the very urban cities in Syria, and all the other cities are really minor and small. So, in the centers, it was coming from uh, organizational skills, uh, organizational initiatives were coming from the traditional political movement, which is leftist in the very wide spectrum of it, because that's the only force that could remain in Syria. I mean, you know that. If you are accused of being Islamist, you need to flee immediately outside of Syria because the lowest, um, I mean, if you're Islamist, you get death penalty in Syria. There is no compromise. So the forces were active inside were really leftist in the wide spectrum of it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's not only communist, but it's in the wide spectrum of leftism. But on the margins, and that was the real part of the revolution, on the margins, it was families, people who were insulted by the regime and local neighborhoods who had nothing but just the, the hate or the rage against the... And you could see it. It's, it's like you have in Homs, for example, the very first capital of the revolution. In Homs, it was those neighborhoods that were threatened by demolition. Demolition, the, yeah. The, the regime wanted to demolish before the revolution. So it started from 2007. In Homs, the regime had a plan called the Dream of Homs, and that was like uh, five stars, resorts, and luxurious areas and housings for rich people. And that was going to happen on the behalf of, of, of neighborhoods like Al-Khalbi and Bala Amar, those neighborhoods who went fully and completely in the revolution. So it was different kind of people who were, and we were meeting each other for the first time. I need to be honest with you, like I'm coming from the traditional political uh, elite or whatever that means, you know what I mean? Like politicized people. And uh, it was the first time for me to people from those neighborhoods and to go to those neighborhoods and feel that you know, we can do something together. At the beginning, the idea that we have is those people are quite conservative, uh, troublemakers, you know, that there is a kind of a dogma, especially for, for us people who live in the West and, and who have uh, this ethnic background, like Alawis, very gene implemented in our heads that people from inside, they just want to kill you wherever they see you. So it created something that I think political elite, traditional political elite, for the first time, that goes to neighborhood and learn from people. And from, yeah, I, I really saw it. We were learning from this, from, from this movement. And we changed our mindset. We changed all our, our like, Ethiopian uh, understanding of how revolution should happen. Because what, what happens, not only in the urban centers, oh, correct me if I'm wrong, but actually the, the more the repression grew, like the protest grew, there was a wave of protest um, like uh, rolling over the country and there was repression and then the more this repression grew the more people again started to organize on the grassroots level um, actually in the absence of uh, the traditional organizations it's not it's not the case that like parties or, or traditional or leftist organizations went there and started organizing people but instead the people themselves mm -hmm. they went out they recorded uh, they recorded what happened on the demonstration 
then they uploaded uh, the, the material on YouTube to show the world what's going on. And um, they edited the material. And then again, they, they prepared the next demonstration. They, um, they met together in groups of people to, um, to paint, um, to, to draw signs, to, mm -hmm. um, to prepare everything you need for a demonstration. And so it was. Um, it was really a, a very spontaneous, a very spontaneous sort of organizing that happened on the grassroots level, and that more and more people joined. And like the demand from the protesters, like were the protesters already aware that this this is a revolution that they are just starting? And was what was the demands of the people in the beginning? Like was it like Assad must resign? No, actually, at the very very beginning, uh, when it was only happening in Dara. In that, I just wanted the person who insulted them, this official, this officer in the secret services. They just wanted him to resign. So that was a demand, and they were just demanding that. And people in other cities were were um, in solidarity with that. So there was no political demand. The first political demand, I think, happened after Assad spoke for the first time, after the first speech of Assad, when. People felt that he's completely disconnected because until then they really thought he doesn't know and now these people who protested in Daraa and other cities uh, made him aware of something so he, he says he's gonna say something and we all had hope that That was in May spring. That was like uh, two months after the first protest, right? Two, that two was, uh, I mean, a couple of, uh, maybe at least, like, at least one month after the first protest. And in that time we were just like waiting for him to come up and to show up and We thought he's gonna resign his cousin, which actually we didn't know at that time, but he ended up to be his cousin, that officer in, in the South in Dara. But then when he said it, people started demanding the end of emergency laws because people were taken to jail and murdered in the streets because we have something called emergency laws in Syria since 1970 or something. So first the demands were uh, first the demands were about his cousin and then it was about emergency laws. And then when he did the second speech, people, that was in July 2011, so like four months after the start. In July 2011, we were, it was the first time that we actually demanded the fall of Bashar itself. And it took a different form. It's not a reformation anymore, it's not a change anymore, but it's, it's a revolution. And what happened then was that uh, all these grassroots groups, um, that acted really locally and independently from each other, but who did, who actually did the same things naturally because they had to deal with the same issues. They also started getting more organized in the form of building confederations like the LCC Syria network. Like they built three or four or five networks of these local coordination committees, the LCCs uh, in Arabic, Tamsidiyat. Uh, and this You know, this was then a, a more complex level of, of organizing because they... Maybe you can talk about this, Mohammed, because you were really involved in this. I do, I will talk about my own experience. I remember when someone came from my hometown and visited me and said, okay, in Syria people are organizing something, and that was in summer, the beginning of summer. Uh, he said, we will start a coordination committee. We don't know how to, but we need to start a coordination committee for those. So it, it's people, group of people... That in the center it was people who knew each other before from the political movement, but in the neighborhoods and in the mar on, on the outskirts of, of the cities, it was locals who knew each other socially before. So it was two different movements that are. 
parallel, they connect, but they still, you see that in the center, in, in the urban centers, it took a different form than what it was, what was happening in, in the outskirts of the cities. So, uh, me and this person, we knew each other because of, we were both politically active before the revolution. That was one form of, 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 of uniting and, and organizing that I would say later we, diff- we, we discovered that it, it, it created a split in the movement. But at that, at, time we, at that time, we really thought that a coordination committee in the center is as worthy as a coordination committee in the outskirts. Mohamed, you are dealing more with what happened when uh, money from uh, Western countries was flowing in to support those local co- coordination committees and all the grassroots work that was being done by the people. I remember, Mohammed, that you told me that uh, as early as August 2011, money was starting to flow in from European countries that was supposed to support the structures um, at the grassroots. And I think your experience is really interesting. And it's an experience that is not only done uh, in that is not only made in Syria, but that has been made uh, uh, in a lot of countries where where a political movement was met with money that came from outside. And I think these experiences are really important and we have to learn from them. Actually, that is at the core of what I say. That's split in the movement because I now uh, I can clearly say that those coordination committees at, in the center, we at some point started differentiating ourselves Others by saying we are civil actors, as if that means something. We had no clue. I personally had no clue that this is in a in a translation. One of the translation would mean bourgeois burger 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 and it's, it's it's a classist. It was you could see that it was a classist. But at that time we were just distancing ourselves from people who say Allah Akbar in a You know what I mean? People who have a a Muslim background, it's not an Islamist background, but a Muslim background, and we were supposed to be not. So we decided, decided to give ourselves the name of civil activists. And those civil activists were, at the beginning, actually, it was not money sent to Syria, it was activists from Syria. Wait, I think, I think you need to, I think you first need to explain that whole thing of, um, like, when, when uh, the protest started, like, there was a code that so that people would know now the protest is starting. Because they couldn't gather, as we do in Germany, and wait for the Lauti to announce, okay, we're starting our demonstration, but people had to flow in, like, a, um, roam in the streets and wait until the protest would start, and sometimes in some places. In some other places, they would start from the mosques, right? And so the, the code word was um, Allahu Akbar, and um, in many places, because this is just what people were, were used to, like, one one man, one woman would say takti, and someone and someone else would answer Allahu Akbar, and this was like the signal that the protest would start. And it had nothing to do with a religious or non-religious uh, character of the demonstration. I think this is important to understand, you know, for people who are not familiar with this. I mean, usually. And I interrupted you uh, at the point where you wanted to start speaking about the further about the money. I mean, Allahu Akbar is just. Uh, a social word more than being religious word. It's a thing that people say to, to motivate themselves while working on something. You can say it, or if you're surprised or something, say Allah Akbar for being surprised. It's not that dangerous word, but uh, we still wanted to distance ourselves from that, which I think is a question of, of classism to God, to be honest. We saw ourselves, I'm talking about the movement, not about individuals. But then, it's 
started with some of the 11 when some activists were uh, able to connect to European NGOs. And at the beginning, they didn't send us money inside, but they demanded some of our activists give them training in Turkey and Lebanon. So basically, they will ask us, not the others, not the not the committees in the outskirts, but mainly the committees of the center, to send them activists to be able to train them on how you do non violent resistance, how you do transitional justice, and certain uh, workshops that were aiming to educate us because we didn't know how to do the job. Or to professionalize. To yeah. make us professional in what we are doing. And that's how it started. So they didn't start by sending us money, but they started by giving us education. And then they said, oh, you can do like more things efficiently if you have a bit of fun. So you do that, take this money and send it back to Syria. And then, oh, but you can, um, you can write a proposal for fund and you'll get much more money than what we can bring you now. Because at the beginning, they were just giving us like a computer and satellite internet. And then they say, oh, yeah, can, you can actually have person um, you can have uh, an application for fund and have someone working as a you know like as a job paid job on providing satellite internet and making sure it's working all the time and that's how it gradually led to a place where you can write a proposal of fund and establish a civil center and instead of going to streets as activists you need for people to come to you in the civil center and we became professional clerks and we just sit there and uh, behind our desk wait for people to come so that we can educate them on how to clean the streets and the civic activism that initially aimed to overthrow the regime and achieve social justice and bring back all those demands from people to people at the end just demanding uh, that the women are working as giving them sewing machines and hairdresser equipment so they can work something extremely unexpected, you know, and call that woman empowerment. I don't know how we could reach a place where we think if we tell women to cook for food, and the idea of women generating money is now woman empowerment, but nothing more than that. I mean, we went to a place where I really believe that the influx of money in Syria, which I was part of also, made us workers. destroyed all political aspects of our revolution. Can I ask a question um, about, like, who were the first, like, was it European NGOs who were starting to work, uh, who were coming in? What was their background and what was what was their approach towards you? Uh, it's still a uh, recession on that, but so far as I got to, to, to um, as my, my research went, the first organization to join, to, to intervene in Syria was called ARC. It's an American, a North American, uh, like from the United States. And that was the first, and then it was followed by a Norwegian organization, and then a German one. It's surely uh, organizations from the global north. I think it, the dynamics that Mohammed has described are really important to understand, and it's what we can see in other countries too. You can see clearly in Palestine, for example, mm -hmm. where after the Oslo peace process in the beginning of the 90s, there was a massive influx of money. And it was a, a civil society, if you want, where uh, leftist actors like the communist socialist parties were usually traditionally very strong. And they all w came under pressure to accept this money, to ask for more money um, by writing proposals to those international um, aid donors who would give the money. They would have to write proposals. And 
um, what always happens is that these donors end up deciding about the agenda. So it was, in the end, it's never the political actors on the ground who say, okay, this is important to us, this matters to us, we need money for this and this and that. Just give us the money, let us do our stuff that we find important. But it's always there's a reversal of accountability. It's not the community anymore that those organizations are accountable to, but then, you know, as soon as the, the big money comes in, those organizations become accountable to the donors from the foreign countries who, who give the money. So um, every two years, uh, those Syrian NGOs uh, have to write proposals for uh, whatever the donor finds important. And this mm -hmm. may change. Like um, in, in this uh, phase, in one phase of two years, the donor might say, okay, we are absolutely committed to women's empowerment. So please write proposals for women's projects. Then two years later, they might change their mind and say, okay, now we're more into children's rights. So why don't we write proposals um, for training, for workshops, uh, this time? So in the end, they, you know, the locals really end up catering to the needs and to the demands of those international donors. This happened in Syria over several years. Mm -hmm. This is not what happened immediately in 2011 on a massive scale. Like it started. Mm -hmm. as soon as the money came in and uh, certainly it corrupted and um, destroyed structures but nevertheless throughout 2011 there was a massive like all over the country grassroots organizing which was really strong and people were really you know pushing their agenda like doing what they found important and also dealing with with the stuff that they had to do like when there was a repression by the regime they were not waiting for money of an ngo to come but they would act and they would try and help the families. They would really stay on that grassroots level and do what they what what they had to do. But then also throughout 2011, what it became more and more clear that this you know the the dynamics of the uprising in Syria would be completely different um, from the one in Egypt and Tunisia, where Ben Ali and Mubarak very quickly resigned. It was then by summer 2011 quite clear already that the Assad government would not resign. So. People had to start organizing, or they had to take their organizing to another dimension because this was, was not enough anymore. And then there was this one very important shift when people started organizing, not in those local coordination committees anymore only, but then also in the local councils, which had quite different tasks. Do you agree with that narrative, Mahna? And uh, I completely agree. And uh, what I can add to it is it went to gradually uh, more and more with the militarization of the revolution because uh, at some point, especially after um, January 2012, people lost hope in peaceful solution with the regime or any way that the regime would resign or they would just give it peacefully. So there was a, a militarized uh, revolution happening parallel to the mass movement. And that, that militarized uh, revolution or uprising liberating cities and, and villages from the regime. So the needs were different. It's not anymore a committee that goes and organizes revolutionary mm. uh, events and uh, activities and protests in the streets. But now we have a liberated area, so we needed another form of, of, of organization that can actually take responsibilities of how people are going to live everyday life, not only what we do against the regime. I think this is... Um this is very hard to imagine for people who are not, who have not lived the revolution or who have not fought 
much about it, but you know, even during a war that then eventually unfolded in Syria, people still have a normal everyday life. So under the conditions of war or under the conditions of liberated territory where the, the state had withdrawn, people were confronted with the task to remove garbage from the streets, to repair electric wires, to care for water supply, to repair water supply, to keep the schools open, to even not not only keep the schools open, but to to organize the exams for for the children so they can so they can move on in their life eventually. And um, like they they had to really take their own everyday life into their own hands. And this is uh, this is what we should really look closely into as leftists as anarchists, as communists, who are interested in how revolutions actually work. Because uh, what happened in Syria, I mean, it was just amazing. People, you know, under conditions of decades of um, learned helplessness, of, how do you say, Ohnmacht, like the, the absolute opposite of, of agency, suddenly developed an agency that was that was really impressive. Like, just, just think about if this happened in Germany. If you, in your house that you're living in, were able to coordinate with your neighbors, with your real existing neighbors, to deal with uh, the garbage that has to be removed from your streets or to to uh, keep the schools running. I think this is really impressive, and this is what people say when uh, I found some quotes and some studies, and also one um, a close friend of Omar Aziz that I um, I will talk about Omar Aziz also, but his friend Sami uh, told me, you know, in this first phase of the revolution, people were really able to to deliver the tasks of the everyday life in a fantastic in a really fantastic way and i think you know when, whenever you you think of, of having a revolution here or if you're dreaming of a revolution this is really what you have to deal with like getting the everyday tasks done and this is why the local councils um, are so interesting i think yeah that's a very nice and uh, interesting thought because usually you wouldn't uh, connect your thoughts about the revolution with taking care of everyday tasks like simple things easy things that have to be done somehow which is very yeah which is still very important and also it's very important to to make visible that you can deal with this stuff on your own or to experience that it's possible to run to run it by yourself somehow And uh, as you uh, just mentioned, uh, Omar Aziz, do you like to like introduce that uh, person and maybe his ideas or how his ideas developed? Yes, Omar Aziz is there now, if you're interested in the topic, um, a little bit well-known because of the, there are a few people, um, a Palestinian blogger uh, whose name is Budur Hassan and um, a British-Syrian journalist activist whose name is Leila Ashami, they have really pushed the remembrance of um, this personality of Omar Aziz. So Omar Aziz was in his 60s and he was outside of Syria. Um, but then when the, the uprising broke out, he decided to return to Syria because he was really enthusiastic about what happened. And then throughout the, this phase that we have discussed in 2011, um, like by fall, he realized that um, The things are going to be difficult, and not only will we have to will the Syrians have to survive the revolution, but maybe they could even save the revolution and, and keep it keep it going. So what he what he did was he conceptualized this idea of the local councils and wrote a paper that has been published after his death. He was arrested in 2012 and then died in jail in um, early 2000, 2013. And he 
papers that were translated also into English and French and Spanish that are really worth reading. I would encourage you to read it and discuss it in your political group or with your Vigi or whatever, because he understood that what was so important about the, the local coordination committees and um, like the gatherings of people uh, of people in groups that would later be the local council, what was so important about them was that people actually got together in a form of new social spaces where they would have to cooperate with each other and where they would have to, on a very psychological individual level, have to develop their own agency. Like they would experience in those in this daily work of dealing with garbage, electricity, education, whatever, they would they would understand that they are able and capable and competent deal with their own lives and to take control over their own lives. And not only on that, like this is the one level that um, psych what would happen psych uh, psychologically and also collectively, it would lead to an experience of, um, of people who would get together, who would create moments of joy and of collective agency. And this for him really was what all what these councils were about. And all the practical tasks were, this was just the operational level you know, the things that would have to be done. But what it was really about was the social relationships that were um, mm -hmm. unfolding in in this cooperation on a daily basis. And was that publicly known during this time, that there's something like this going on? Or was were they rather acting in, let's say, small neighborhood uh, areas where you wouldn't really... I mean, you were maybe you have to hide from military and police patrols and so how developed the idea in Syria let's say or did it at all? Yes it, it absolutely throughout the year of 2012 local councils would just as the local coordination committees before pop up in virtually every town in Syria sometimes the local coordination committees would remain in function sometimes they were transformed into the local councils sometimes both would still run in parallel and you know Omar Aziz he wrote this discussion paper of course not publicly because he would have been arrested and yes. so this circulated um, in a clandestine way among activists who were very well who were in a very close network like maybe Mohammed you can also explain this how people are really well networked in Syria so he wrote um, he wrote these papers and revised them a few months later um, against the background of the uh, the experience he made. So what he did was he himself he helped establish a few councils in Azabadani, which is close to Damascus, and then in Bamze al-Balad, which is um, also a neighborhood of uh, in the north of Damascus. And he tried it also in Duma, where the where it failed. Duma is in the north of Damascus, and of course Omar Aziz was not the one who he is not the architect behind the council movement in Syria, as sometimes is said in the NGO literature. But, you know, the councils, they were just the right thing to do. And mm -hmm. it, Hannah Arendt has written about it. I think, I think she is right. Whatever happens or what usually happens in revolutionary moments is people build councils because it's, the, it's very intuitive. It's the natural thing to do. Um, it's, just, it's just the right thing to do in a revolutionary situation where people have to come together and have to deal with the daily shit. So what he did was he conceptualized it and he helped personally to, to found some of the council. But, you know, eventually 
they, they, the councils all more or less ended up doing the same, at least in the first phase of a few months or the first year or the first two years. Mohammed, I don't know, have you, were you active in, in one of the councils or was that already, had you, had you already left Syria by the time? I mean, I, when I was in Syria, it was at the beginning of the formation. I left uh, 11th of July 2012, but it's a very early beginning of the formation. But I remember the name of Omar Aziz and I remember the discussions, especially in Damascus, about it. Um, it was always like, as, as, as Syria is, the political scene in Syria before the revolution was really tiny and a micro, a micro scene. I mean, people would dare to speak in politics on that many. So we kind of knew each other. The moment that you know someone is, is active here or there, there is a way to connect with them. And the revolution gave us that space. And in our own, own households, we were just gathering a lot of people and having discussions about it. And I remember those discussions. So the liberated areas, I remember someone saying, liberated areas could not, could not resist or maintain themselves for a day without the ideas of Omaraji. This idea was revolutionary in a way. It just blew the mind of people because there were other, other like other activists or let's say there was other literature uh, that was circulating, but it was never applicable. Nothing that was really like a promise from Syrian hands in that way that knows what we are talking about, what we are here, what we have here. And at the beginning, I remember I was connected to the... Uh, local council and homes and the idea of, of urban farming and how they just converted every rooftop to a garden in order to, because they were besieged, they were under the siege mm -hmm. of, of Assad army and they, I mean, this idea was surprising for me that you would just use any square meter to plant and have your own food. I mean, you know, as, as communists, that's all what you think of, like you need your own food sovereignty and then you just see it happening in house, and I'm like, oh, it's mind-blowing at that time. Unfortunately, this is an experience that was uh, destroyed from outside and inside. And I, I, I really, when I think back to it, and I, I think it could it could teach people, you know, and unfortunately leftists all over the world have not, you know, vocalized, verbalized a clear position on the Syrian revolution because really it would be not because I witnessed it, not because I was part of it, but because the way how it politicized people who were never politicized. I mean, in a country that you would never talk about, the, the, the word, the, the term politics is scary as, as if you're talking about devils in Syria. And then you have all this mass movement and you have people who identify themselves as leftists playing a big role at the very beginning, but then people, leftists from Europe and other, world, other places in the world, they just gave a blind eye to it. Instead of supporting, coordinating, contacting us. I mean, I was at the beginning of the revolution outside of Syria, I returned in the second month. And I remember the comments I was talking to from where I was. I would like, I would rather not say it, but the comments I was talking to them about it at the very beginning, of like, yeah, it's a conspiracy Syria has. I mean, it just started ask for contact to people or, you know, that, that diplomatic approach among leftists that gave a blind eye to Syrians and Syrian revolution, well, I think it was really good. It could be a, an opportunity to, to learn. And interestingly, um, Omar Aziz himself made, he drew a very, very clear reference 
into the leftist history of revolutions because I think it was shortly before his arrest that he said, we are no less than the Paris Commune. Wir sind nicht weniger als die Pariser Commune. We are no less than the Paris Commune. Um, they resisted for 70 days. We are still going on after one year and a half. And I think, like, this is a big thing to say, right? Because the Paris Commune is is such a big issue in our leftist understanding, in our leftist history, like in the leftist chronology of, of revolutions. It, like, we always start with the with, with the Paris Commune. Marx said it was eventually found form for the proletariat to organize in in actually in form of count of a council. And I would I would absolutely try to convince everyone within a leftist milieu to consider Syria as part of this revolutionary line that starts with the Paris Commune or with whatever that goes on to Germany in 1918, that uh, considers Spain in the 1930s, that deals with Rojava and Chiapas. And I think Syria deserves, really deserves that place um, in that history, not only, but also because Omar Aziz really managed to conceptualize the councils and, and the way they were, in which they were functioning. And what I find really beautiful is the, that the discussion papers that Omar Aziz wrote, they are written in a very, very modest way. Like everyone can read it because he was primarily concerned to make suggestions how to deal with the daily issues. But if you if you are aware of a bit of Spinoza, of a bit of Rosa Luxemburg, of a bit of Hardin Negri, that this was his intellectual background. Interestingly, he was not um, familiar with all this Rete Kommunismus by Anton Panneklöck and so on. Um, he was not really dealing with Hannah Arendt and so on, um, but he was he was really interested in uh, Hart and Mekri and with their revolutionary zeal, you know, with um, how they like revolutionary mo moments in which people would go out in the streets and dance and have an orgy, if you want. And um, this is what he also perceived. He was, Sami explained to me that they were so happy to see people in the streets dancing and celebrating their lives and their revolution. And this actually, you know, this is this was his intellectual background. He was convinced of this and he was really happy to see that this actually happened and that people were able to do all this. And if you read those papers, you, you don't have to know Spinoza and his ethics and you don't have to know Harbin Nikri and how they think about revolution. You don't have to know Rosa Luxemburg and why she defended uh, spontaneity against Lenin and so on. But if you do, it's really interesting to read it and to appreciate like how he how he knitted, how he constructed, you know, a concept that that would serve so well in, in this revolutionary situation. Actually what he offers what Omar Aziz offers us as leftists, anarchists, communists, is that we that we actualize and revisit our ideas of how councils work and how revolutions work. And I really like how this, um, actually, how we can put this into relation with uh, discussions, for for example, of Bini Adamczak, beziehungsweise Revolution, who, like Bini Adamczak is thinking about uh, revolutions from a perspective that uh, really focuses on, on the Beziehungsweisen of people. Like, it's not a technical issue. Councils are, and, and this is what Syria teaches us, councils are not only a technical issue. We are not only we are not only getting rid of the garbage and uh, repairing electrical wires we are dealing with each other and this is what creates new ways of relating to each other and this is you know this is what the revolution is made of and this is what 
then communism is also made of. It's made of an organizational level of dealing with the garbage, but it's also and fundamentally also made of, of yeah, creating these new ways of relating to each other. I uh, really appreciate what you what you just said about to highlight the Syrian revolution as an example also for us to study and to learn from that. Uh, but I want to come back to one point because we we discussed like that like very early from maybe 2011 on there were like NGOs bringing professional like bringing in money or professionalizing activists work in Syria and so I'm wondering about the like the lack of international solidarity like on also like a grassroots level like not on a money level or on a professional activist level but on a like solidarity level throughout international networks or whatever and i yeah i'm wondering about if you can say something about what you experienced maybe muhammad or if you experienced something of, of that or why you think you didn't actually when i arrived to uh, europe say after i left syria so September, sorry, so in September 2012, I arrived to Europe and they have no clue what's happened. Uh, just so much uh, I was inside Syria and my whole attention was going inside Syria and they thought people know what we are doing. I arrived and they felt like, well, it's not only lack of, of it's not only lack of solidarity, but rather uh, they have a strict opinion against what we are doing. I, mean, I, I believe that when I arrived to Europe, people would be aware of what we are doing a break for me because that's what I thought. I thought it's going to be a couple of months and then I will return back. You know? I never believed I would be in Europe talking about it 10 years afterwards. But in that time, I thought, okay, I'm going to go to Europe. It's a couple of months, one year maximum, and I will share this expertise with people, or comrades, whatever that is. In Europe. I actually arrived and I felt I needed to defend the revolution instead of sharing the expertise with it. Instead of you know talking about it, I need to defend it. It was like, wow, that was in Italy before I moved to Germany. These are the people I would have called comrades, and now they just they want to teach me how Syria is, which I discovered this is going to be the the nature of my relation to to Europe. They would they, they needed to teach. They wanted to teach me how Syria is, what I didn't know because I was the angry activist on the floor, and they should be know more from from abroad. Was disappointing. It was frustrating to see that no, I, I, I arrived to a level where I don't need solidarity, but I don't need you to judge us like this. You know, that what that what I thought at the beginning, at, at the end, before I started to, to just disconnect from the European sort of activism and return to my my Syrian networks and be only there because it was frustrating. It was emotionally draining. We need to to go and talk in. in places and then at the end you see that they only minimize you to a refugee and they are interested about how you came to Europe more than what happened to you before you came to Europe or if they are about to discuss Syria with you they just need they, I felt that European activists wanted to tell me the truth about it and it's rare those cases where I really felt that people are listening or want to listen or really think that they can learn something from Syria because There is that idea that, okay, yeah, it's a third world country, but, you know, that was still there. I saw it. I witnessed how it was a major part of the discussion. And sorry, but, like, it was really frustrating, my my attempts to, to 
connect to European languages for Slavic. Um, may I ask you, like, when you arrived in Europe and when you, let's say, you try to make some connections with European leftists, were you, like, was that, like, on which political direction were you talking about? Because I also remember, like, times where, like, leftist or bigger leftist newspapers in Germany would somehow internationalize this conflict without talking about what people are sacrificing their lives for on the daily basis in the streets, but they were rather discussing, like, is Assad uh, the bad guy or is Putin the bad guy or, you know what I mean somehow? I surely when I arrive, my extension, my connection will be with uh, more... Uh, so in Berlin, I was part of, I was trying to connect to the uh, international block of the, the 1st of May and do this kind of um, organizations around it. Frustrating. Mm. Even from the official parties, I have some connection to the Linke, for example, and certain streams inside the Linke, and I had the same experience. I mean, we were as as leftist activists in Berlin for from 2014 until 2017, organizing almost a monthly protest in Saudi Syria, and it's like 95 percent of us were Syrians at the end. 95% of people who came and tried to take a part of it were serious. There was always a question, and I'm the, I'm the one in the, in the group, I was the one that says, oh no, we need to connect to local activists, we can't be only Syrians, we need to connect. I was the one that was always trying to push forward and say, okay, we don't need to organize our protest in, in, in Hermann Platz and march only among Arabs, but let's go and then be in, in where Kupi is, where all those past projects are, and maybe try to connect to, to, to German activists, to be honest. And every time after the protest, I would be asked, okay, so what are they, you know? So we went to their places, and where are they now? Yes, I, I also I really understand it's frustrating. I'm, I'm a bit relieved that it not only happened to you in Germany, but also apparently in Italy, but it doesn't make doesn't make it better in the end. I mean, the the solidarity in Germany has been quite selective, um, to maybe even for understandable reasons. You know, there has been a focus of solidarity on Rojava and the, like the Kurdish or by now the the project of northeastern Syria, and I mean this is great. This is also it's a very important um, revolutionary project. It's it's a really interesting and fascinating transformation and experience that is going on there. And I think one part of the problem is that we are also, like individually and as groups, we are really wrapped up in our daily stuff and the day has 24 hours and uh, like we can't deal with everything in detail. So I think what happened many times in, for, for many people is that we, di we didn't, many people haven't understood and haven't grasped and haven't... Um, Yeah, haven't understood what was happening in Syria because they had a lack of attention. Their, their, their focus of attention was on Rojava. And I understand that. But what really weighs heavily in my eyes is that those people who had a certain attention for what was happening in Syria backed, uh, morally backed al-Assad and said, you know, he's at least he's an anti-imperialist guy and it, everything is so complicated in Syria. Like, You know, I, I don't expect everyone to have the right opinion to something, but if you don't have the time to invest and to, to 
deal with something thoroughly, at least shut up and don't, you know, <laughs> uh, depreci depreciate that Syrian revolution that, that was indeed, you know, such a treasure for us to learn from. Like, literally, I, I, I sometimes wish them to shut up. I mean, like, I go in a 40-minute presentation about Syria, and then someone says, yeah, but what about the American intervention? Shall I die because Americans are there in life? My, 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 my value, I, I worth also, my life and dignity worth also. I mean, this duality of imperialism and anti-imperialism, I don't want to be the victim of this duality because... Marxism itself is not based on duality, on dualism. I don't, I, I haven't read Marxism as that. It was never about, about dualities. It was more about dialectic of things. But then I reached Europe and I thought, okay, now it's time to, to, to rest and talk about things. And then I'm like, no, you really think that I, I, I can accept to die because there is a war against imperialism? And I accept to me and all my friends and all my circles to live. And it's not like we want the Americans to intervene in Syria, we actually, we are still on the anti-imperialist plate of, 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 of things. We have, we have like collateral damage or collateral casualties for this fight. That's how I really believe that they only centralize themselves in the discussion once again. Mm -hmm. They centralize themselves, but instead of saying our interests are at, at top, it's now the fight against their own grandparents or their what they see themselves as. I guess it's very sad, but uh, yeah, I somehow, I guess I also experienced it partly myself because from very, very early on, I understood this war that was going on in Syria, or it was presented as like a very international conflict. You can't see through who is acting on whose behalf, blah, 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 blah. Very early, the media didn't pay any attention to folks on the street or to yeah to people who started a revolution in Syria and then I guess it's also wrong to only focus on what's happening in Rojava or in the area of Rojava because if there is a war going on going on in the rest of Syria and like people are like I guess it's just wrong to only focus on Rojava and the question of the Kurdish people. There was one thing I never understood, which is why when we talk about Rojava, people have the ability to zoom in and see mm -hmm. the internal dynamics and the needs of the Kurdish people to, to, to have independence and liberation. Mm -hmm. While when we talk about Syrians, they need to zoom out as much as possible to analyze the, the Cold War once again. It was not clear for me. I mean, exactly what the same lenses that you are seeing the needs of the Kurdish people you could apply it, the same lens, just take it and move it a bit to the south of Kobani, mm -hmm. which is in a entire country called Syria. But, so I still didn't understand. This is I a think weird thing. You, maybe you can, you can frame it positively. I think the, the, the Rojava solidarity is a success story. I think it is, it's quite amazing how, you know, over years and maybe probably decades, um, this uh, solidarity word has been evolving. And it's, I mean, it's quite precious. It's great that, uh, that people are so, so much uh, dedicated to this. And um, it's just a pity, you know, that uh, this did not happen in, in, um, with regard to Syria, to the rest, with regard to the rest of Syria. And for example, with regard to the local councils. That's the thing. I mean, this zooming in to see why we need to support. I mean, why do we need to support Rojava? Because it's a just 
codes, no? It just everybody agrees that it's a just code. It's it's fight for something that we all believe in, and that's based on what is needed for for goods themselves. And nobody is saying, "Oh, yeah, they, they collaborated with the Americans." And what about the war on ISIS? They were really the best allies of the U.S. We don't see that because it's about the micro dynamic of what is happening in the region and what goods do we need. But when it's about Syria, people took me in a in a voyage to 1960s. I think it's true, but I think one one factor that could explain for this is also that the um, like the whole local council issue did not have an aura of uh, you know um, revolutionary leftism as the um, as the PKK or the the Kurdish actors in, in northern Syria have because there's there are icons there is sim there are symbols. Um, it's quite easy as a leftist to, to relate to it. And then you can, you know, it, it's quite clear this leftist. And then it, I can say, oh, no, this is too authoritarian for me. Or, no, I, I am, I'm all in. <laughs> I really like what they are doing. I support them. But, you know, in the, I think many people have failed to understand that what happened in Syria with the local councils, for example, um, is truly revolutionary. Although people do not go around and spray the circled letters A or um, other iconography, but nevertheless, this is what a revolution looks like. And um, you know, not just any revolution, but this is what what the uh, yeah what uh, a really uh, an emancipatory uh, revolution looks like, which takes the forms of councils and. If you go if you go back to the Paris Commune, I mean they raised I think the red flag, but they also didn't go uh, go about in the streets and and say every five minutes, by the way we are anarchists or by the way we are communists. You know they just did what what needed to be done. The same holds true for for Germany in 1918. Um, most of the people who were involved in the councils in the Arbeiter and Soldatenräte, um, they did not care about labeling themselves. Um, so much. Maybe the case is different for Spain in the 30s, but um, I think this is what really made it so difficult for people to relate to Syria because they were so fixed, so uh, fixated, so focused on. They are so used to, to seeing symbols that they can relate to. So maybe this is the reason why they really missed what was so important about uh, about that revolution in Syria. I don't know, but um, yeah, maybe we can also talk about this. Um, this tragedy of the of the local councils. One factor of this was this NGOism and the, the influx of money. But I think there are other other factors to it that are also uh, worth considering. Okay, before we go into this, can I uh, ask something? I'm I'm wondering about the let's say the meaning of anarchism in Syria. Like, is that word like is it existent or? Is it like pretty modern or is it pretty Western or is there something that you would compare to as an, let's say, Syrian or Arabic uh, approach to something similar? Thank you. That I, would, I was just really thinking about this. Anarchism as a term is really new and people didn't know it before. I mean, the revolution gave them out a break for it. So many people who used to be called communists historically decided to call themselves anarchists out of a sudden. And you need to know that before the revolution, the, 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 the popular term for, for people who believe in, who had, like the idea of, of being against private property, of 
production means of production, you would be called communist. Mm-hmm. So there is a the term communist is actually like contains a huge spectrum from Leninism to people who were in the post-colonial era already, you know. And I, I actually think that Syrians did go on the wall leftist graffiti, and some of them even drew, drew the A in a circle, and but some of them drew it in Arabic or the Arabic equivalent to it, and it's called a Sultan al Shab. I don't know how that. It was on the walls of people. Tawli Madaniya is leftist uh, in the widest spectrum, you could say, also demand, and it was written everywhere. So you see that, yeah, like, if you want to, to, to see Syria and maybe see what Syrians communist or communist again in the Syrian term, in the Syrian meaning of it, what Syrian communist use, you would see it in every on every wall in Syria, but not the A. I mean, it is. It is perceived as West. I, I, I can tell you that. I mean, uh, people who would say we are anarchists, I mean, people who say we are communists are perceived as Syrians, as like locals. And if you say I'm anarchist, you are perceived as, if you throw the mm-hmm. A on the wall, you are perceived as uh, as Western and Westernized mm-hmm. mind already. So it is another, and being Westernized is not only uh, a colonial question, it's a classist question also mm-hmm. in Syria. So, you know what I mean? I mean, being westernized means you have access to, to the West, then it's yeah, not for everyone. I, I think in terms of a, a real social or political movement, um, anarchism is, has not been really present in the Arab world. And now there are some exceptions. So, for example, you could consider um, the council experience in Algeria as part of an anarchist history, if you wanted. That was in the 60s, and it was really interesting. It was about the, It was after the Algerian Revolution, and there were two years of a council experiment where really it, it was really from the working class people that people uh, took over um, took over means of production and um, it it was an interesting experience. But on that massive scale, there was no, if you want, anarchist movement in the Arab world. However, it's quite it's interesting that um, at the turn of the century, like around 1900 or even in the 1880s, for example, Enrico Malatesta was a famous uh, exile in Egypt and there was a bunch of anarchists who uh, who were exiled in Alexandria in Egypt. So um, some anarchists have made it to the Arab world, some European anarchists, and they have certainly left their traces there. And um, there, it, it was not only Europeans, they, they were in connection also with um, Arabs in Lebanon and uh, they created radical networks in which um, anarchists thought um, circulated. So it was rather in, in an intellectual realm that anarchism also emerged in the Arab world. But uh, for example, also Enrico Malatesta and his homies, if you like, they they also were involved in, in labor struggles in Alexandria with uh, tobacco syndicates or with um, you know other professional syndicates. So there are some nice stories about anarchism in the Arab world, but as I said, again, it's not, you know, it hasn't been a tradition as it has been in like countries that were strongholds uh, for anarchism, mm-hmm. such as Italy or mm-hmm. Spain or whatever. Okay, thanks. I mean, I guess, yeah, we don't have to look for, for let's say, the roots of Western anarchism in the Arab world or something like this, but rather if there's maybe something similar that we could like connect or put together or think about similar thoughts, rather 
yeah, on a informational level. And I uh, agree with what you said, Muhammad, that it seems to be pretty also like a question of class to have access to Western literature about anarchism and then maybe be able to, I don't know, read English or have the time to read and to study and to get into this. So I guess, yeah, that's also a matter of class of, yeah, background. And I would say that there is, in Egypt, there is a revolutionary socialist, and that's an artist movement that is performing and widely in Egypt. Uh, in Syria, I think there are like Syrian anarchists and Syrian anarchist feminist movement, I think, officially called like this. I don't know how many people are in there, but I mean, you hear those criticism is that they publish more in English than in Arabic. You know, yeah. I mean, you, you see that, okay, there is something, people are aware of it, mm -hmm. but they obviously are more interested in, in being English-speaking mm -hmm. activists than being local. I mean, at that time, in, at the beginning of the 20th century in Egypt, when anarchists were present there, especially Italian anarchists, I think, they were publishing in Arabic and Italian. And, uh, you see that they were targeting the Italian uh, community in Alexandria in language and then they go to the Arab workers and they speak to them in another language and it's not only translation but it's it's adjustment of the whole discourse. Well my 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 take on the Arab anarchists so far, I mean uh, I think so something like the translation of, of anarchism in Arabic is anarchy, which is the thing you say when you don't know what to translate to. Communism has a translation, which is Shiwa'iya, and it's an Arabic term, it's an organic Arabic term, or anarchy is obviously imported, and if I go to my grandmother, I say, my grandmother is an anarchist, she wouldn't understand what I'm saying, not even my mother would understand what I'm saying, but if I go to my grand-grandmother and I say, I'm, I'm, I'm a communist, I'm Shiwa, she would obviously connect me to something, so it has something in the background, and mm -hmm. people who, uh, the first, the first, um, wave of communists in the Arab world really worked hard to make it an organic movement, translated a lot. While the anarchist movement is not translated, the anarchist literature is not, because I, I think that there is an assumption that if you want to read them, then you already speak English, so we don't need to, mm -hmm. or you need to communicate with only people who speak English, and mm -hmm. you're excluding 99% of the Arabs, but it doesn't seem to be an issue. However, I um, I know that, for example, Bakunin has been translated, and um, I mean, you could if you if you knew that you were searching for um, anarchists translated into Arabic, you might probably find them. And I want to um, raise an issue. I think digital media actually really have helped to diffuse anarchist um, literature because the Egyptian anarchists that you mentioned um, after the Arab Spring or even before they have been involved in in uh, translating uh, Bakunin um, and maybe even Kropotkin and other authors into um, Arabic and they just uploaded the document on Facebook and tried to spread it on Facebook. And I mean, this is a, this is a, this is a chance actually to use digital media to, to diffuse this, this thought because it's really a matter of class to go to a library and search for anarchist text. But if they are available on Facebook by, by a click, you know, it's um, it's much more available and accessible. Before I raised uh, the topic, we were like trying to to find like other reasons why the Syrian revolution didn't succeed in the end. I guess, and I was wondering what were your like what were you thinking about when you were saying that something specific. Yes, I'm. Um, I mean, 
excited if uh, Mohammed is, um, will agree or not. But what I think is, uh, happened is something also very typical about revolutions. I, what I see is a combination of different factors. The one factor that we have already mentioned is the NGOism. So it's, it's, and maybe this is a very modern phenomenon that, uh, you know, the uh, grassroots initiatives are really um, political, not, not civil society, but political actors are um, being co-opted by money, uh, by money flows, by international money flows. This is one very, very important factor. And then what I also see at work in Syria is, of course, that the Islamists are um, the way in which the counter-revolution appears. So whenever you have a, a revolution, you, you have, first of all, you have the regimes who uh, answer with repression. That's a given. You know, we don't have to discuss this anymore. Mm -hmm. um, that's always there. And then what you also have is uh, different, different forms of counter-revolution. And I think the Islamists were just that. But what I find interesting is that um, Sami, um, who I interviewed several times, said he is not happy with the way in which the Islamists were able to take over the councils in many places. And it's not it's not the case that they always came with the guns and you know forced people to abide by their new laws. But in some places they just they could gain legitimacy. How? By providing people with uh, what they needed on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So what people needed was bread, because they are hungry. If the Islamists, for what reasons uh, ever, come and are able to supply people with bread, whereas the local councils were not able in some places to, uh, you know, to feed the people and to take care that they are not hungry, this is, a, this is an absolutely weak point. And I am wondering myself whether it was a mistake in Aziz's concept and in the concept and in the practice of the local councils to neglect this factor of actually collectivizing and expropriating agricultural land and mills for flour, for wheat and bakeries for bread. This is the point where I'm, I don't know yet if this thesis is right or not, but um, I think it's a point we have to consider. And there is still something which is unclear for me. I mean, regarding local council in Tartus, my hometown, we gathered all the revolutionary forces, and that was five. So we have five different coordination committees of revolutionary forces in the city. We gathered them all, and we have we have nominated a, a person to be at the, at the head of the local council. We were so certain that this activist, she would become the, 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 director. the coordinator the coordinator of the local council in our hometown. And then suddenly we have someone who is not living in Tartus, we don't know him, and he's assigned. And I personally asked Maza Khabib, who was at the, uh, who was the president of the um, Syrian council, something political, so at the top. I asked him personally, and he said, oh yeah, he's assigned by the Muslim Brotherhood, we can't take I mean, but how, who, you know? There was something in between, which I think is about corruption at some point in the political leadership of the of the revolution, because there was a kind of a, an official political elite that, that represented the revolution and intervened and uh, had all the connections in their hands at the end. So they, they could get the power, they could, yeah, they could get the agency of, of assigning people and. That was my experience. So the idea of, of local council in my hometown was an amazing idea. We wanted so much to have it. And then suddenly we have a person who stole 200,000 octopus, stole $200,000 and 
led with them to, to, to Turkey or something. So, so you mean the director of the local council was assigned by the, by the exact opposition, opposition exactly. Okay, because this is an interesting this is an interesting point. Omar Ali also devoted a small section in his uh, papers about the Syrian National Council, which had formed in summer 2011, and it's called National Council National Arab, and it alludes to you know it it's, um, it suggests that it's part of this council architecture, and indeed it could have been that you know when you have councils on a local level, very soon you will have to deal not only with local issues but you will have to do deal with regional issues and then you will have to deal with issues on a if you want national level or a, a broader regional level so um it's it's quite plausible to aggregate councils and to find an architecture in which you would coordinate councils from the local with the regional level with the broader national level and so on so when this syrian national council emerged it was a chance actually to you know to support the local councils on the local level But of course, from Aziz's view and from the view of the revolutionaries, the chain of accountability and the you know the chain of decision making was supposed to be from the bottom up, you know, from yeah. the local level to the regional and then to the Syrian National Council. The problem then, however, was that the Syrian National Council was in exile, so they were completely detached. They had no relation with the with the grassroots level. And they were trying, on an international level, in diplomacy, to you know, to gain to gain support for the Syrian revolution. So they became accountable to Germany, to France, and so on. And they tried to use the local councils as a way to say, "Hey, look, we, the Syrian National Council, we are representing the good democratical on the local level. See, we have these councils. They are really great because they can be very." efficient administrative structures they deliver all the administration um, on the local level and uh, soon when the Assad government is gone and the revolution succeeds we will have a new state and we already have these great councils that can be the local administration so this was the top-down pressure that occurred from this um, exile government and which actually it, it was such a pressure on the local councils and they because what, what happened was what what Muhammad What Mohammed has just described, the Syrian National Council took money from the international community and um, installed regional councils from top down. Mm -hmm. And the regional councils would try to co-opt the councils on the local level uh, and decide what they, how they would vote, how they, you know, how they would um, organize internally. So this was one set of pressure that really co-opted and also destroyed this revolutionary potential of the local councils. And I think this teaches us that. You know, whenever there's a, a, a top-down structure, it 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 was always very harmful to this uh, to the you know basic basis democracy and to this uh, grassroots dem democracy. Mm -hmm. But again, I would I, I would like to hear your opinion, Mohammed, on on this matter. Is, is it like should should the Syrians have collectivized and expropriated? Um, I mean, there's no industry, right? Syria has no large industry. You can't go and uh, occupy uh, this and that factory. It's, um, it's the economy is made up of small business, and um, but should people have collectivized agricultural land in order to ensure that um, you know that uh, bread supply was um, was safe? And also small factories, I think, because we had those small workshops. We call them factories in Arabic, but 
they are more like a, like small workshops, and they could be an important resource of, of fun local, like locally produced fun. But there was an assumption that if you are collaborating, uh, if you have a factory, then you are already collaborating with the regime, and that factory was seen as an enemy entity. So it was destroyed instead of being um, occupied and run independently from the owners. There were a lot of mistakes. I mean, for me, my, my own interest is, is now researching how uh, money corrupted the revolution. And I think it was Ho Chi Minh who said, if you want to corrupt the revolution, pour money on it. And that's what happened, unfortunately. It's, as you said, the exiled opposition had a lot of interest in financing their own lives, maybe. Or maybe they thought that's a way how we can do something, like providing Syrians with money. But... Um, there was a lot of corruption. So suddenly we have Mohammed Sayyid in my hometown, who we don't know who he is. He stole $200,000. That was the whole budget that we had for our city with the internal, internal displaced people that we needed to work with. And all the other, like we have Banias, which was a, really a, a, string, a strong like stronghold of the revolution. And there were a lot of, of things to, to, to do there. And corruption prevented us from doing anything. We kind of, even us, we collapsed as a movement after that because we saw that we need to fight the regime on one side. On the other side, the head of the political elites in Syria is telling me that we can't do anything about it. That who can do? Who can? Like, there was a moment when I really got frustrated and I remember during my comments that there is no hope. What are we fighting for? If we could be couple as such, we would have these people who are even worse, obviously. Like, they didn't get power yet and they are still stealing. They're self-stealing and confiscating our voices so maybe we were meant, not meant to, to, to do something but we progressed it was an amazing step forward in accumulating experience and expertise and literature for the whole region to learn from I mean the last 10 years and without the Syrian revolution something like Rojava would not have happened it was because of the Syrian revolution because people protested in Dara'a and something like Rojava could happen, could, could be a reality. So I don't think that the way how those two projects, the Syrian revolutions and Rojava, how they are presented as enemies, as like contradicting entities, I don't think, I mean, maybe I can say even from my position, Rojava is one of the best uh, projects that the revolution brought mm -hmm. to the region, came to the region. I mean, Rojava started with Kurdish activists who yeah. found a possibility to return to their cities from Hanzil because of the Syrian revolution. It was never possible before. I think that's a very, very good point. I, th I really like that narrative to say that uh, Rojava is a child of the Syrian revolution in general. It's not only a child of uh, the PKK or the, the, you know, the activism in that region, but it was only possible within that greater context of the uprising. I also think that's a very, after so many bad things that we heard, it's also like a very nice uh, conclusion somehow, because you cannot say that all the efforts of the Syrian people in Syria failed and everything was doomed, because maybe not everything is doomed. I don't know. I like maybe since I feel like we should like slowly come to an end, I would like to have some thoughts from you about the situation in Syria like today. What do you think? What do you feel? What are your thoughts about what's going on and what's gonna happen maybe? If that's not rude to ask. I uh, it's a very 
it seems that there will be um, there will be three regions in Syria, so northwest will be taken by Turkey, and it would be the case. And obviously, the regime, the Russians, accepted to that, consented to it. So, and you have northeast in Rojava. I think also like there is a disagreement between the Iranians and because now Syria is not in Syrian hands, unfortunately, not mm-hmm. anymore. I mean, it's Russians, Iranians. Americans who decide, and I'm worried about the future of Rojava because it seems like threatened at the moment, and it's important to to, to maintain something like this. But yeah, this the future of Syria seems to be like the Lebanese, it's the Lebanese uh, model, where there will be um, a revolution, and then that revolution will be presented as civil war between two different, three different sects. So we need to have an integration of uh, excluded uh, ethnicities and. It's a liberal solution to the to, to crisis, unfortunately. I mean, it's taken as ethnicities who cannot, cannot coexist and we need to know how to make them exist. And it's not the potential of a revolution that, because it will be threatening for the liberal model in the Middle East if it will be seen as such. What I would like to add is that I really hope the revolution is not a lost cause just because the river the revolution itself has not succeeded. But I hope that the experience um, that the people have made will remain and will somehow increase their agency in the future if another uprising erupts. And I think we in Germany, as non-Syrians, can do is to, you know, to help or to push the remembrance of this revolution and to really listen to the people and to help them tell their stories. And um, I think this is this is the task that, uh, that we have to deal with as leftists. And that's the contribution that we can make, not only as, a, as an act of solidarity with the Syrians, but for our own sake, because the Syrian revolution is one of ours, I think. And maybe also to free us from the idea that was somehow brought upon us that... Syria wasn't just like a civil war, like an international conflict where you can't see through and you don't have no idea what's going on and the Islamists and all these terrific topics, which is actually pretty, yeah, I don't know. It would be pretty easier to like let people talk their experiences and maybe just listen and, yeah, I don't know, understand and maybe, yeah. If we judge the whole Russian revolution of 1917 by, you know, by the outcome uh, in the 30s, in the 1930s. But if, we, you know, what was so exciting about the Russian Revolution was the first years. And um, this is something very common among that, that revolutions uh, share as a characteristic that uh, there's a very uh, revolutionary phase in the be- beginning where, where things uh, function in a very great way and where people make great experience. And I think This is also what we have to save for ourselves from the Syrian revolution, that initial phase. And we really have to zoom into this and see what we can what we can take out as experience that we can learn from. Mama, do you feel like you like there's something that you somehow would like to say before we like stop this conversation or something that we forget to talk about or <laughs> I think actually it was a really nice discussion. I mean, um Uh, for a long time, there has been no debates, discussions, uh, talks about Syria. Uh, and I'm really happy to have the topic back. And uh, there is something I remember 
now as I was talking about the Lebanese model, at the very beginning of the Lebanese civil war between brackets, I mean, by 1974-1975, Mahdi Amr, one of, one of the amazing revolutionaries of the Arab world, and I'm really sad that his books are not translated into English so that people can read what this person has to say. He was saying that these what he's saying, what he was living, and he he he, he lived he lived the war. He was there, and he he was saying that what he was witnessing is the potential, the the conditions of a proper classes uh, like war class, where he really believed it is something that is similar to the Russian Revolution that was happening in Iran. Unfortunately, later regional powers intervened. Um, regressive forces from Lebanon intervened and it became and what we know about it now it's, it, it's a civil war and now we are in a different era where I'm, I'm really uh, hopeful that the Arab revolutions the Arab spring between brackets will not be mentioned as such in the future. We have the potentials we have the possibilities of saying it is a revolution in Syria it started as it as a revolution which makes it a revolution and not to accept the narrative that it's just a civil war, which the same media, um, the same um, governments that said, oh, it's an uprising at the beginning, now they started saying it's a civil war and it's a dangerous perspective. It's not what we want to give to the next generations. We don't need to give them the idea that people outside of the center, of the, outside of the Western European center, are only capable of creating, generating civil wars while revolutions are only in the north. There is a revolution in Syria, and it's important to fight for this fact.